The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Looking at a short text tonight, a very familiar one, Psalm 1. Follow in your Bible as I read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of of the wicked will perish. Our Father, we ask that you show us the reality and the depth of this, your word tonight, and its application to us for your glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You all certainly know the phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's probably one of the most famous phrases from the U.S. Declaration of Independence, and might be considered by many as one of the best-crafted sentences in the history of the English language. Those three things, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we're told in the Declaration, are inalienable rights of mankind. I always like to dig around in the hidden parts of history before everything was set in concrete. Did you know that that phrase was not in Jefferson's original draft? At least it didn't read that way. Jefferson wrote in the first draft of the Declaration of Independence, the inalienable rights were life, liberty, and the means of acquiring and possessing property. He really did. That was the first draft. And Ben Franklin got a hold of his friend and persuaded him to downplay the emphasis on property and replace it with John Locke's phrase, a famous philosopher of that time. John Locke emphasized the pursuit of happiness. Well, if we American people captured happiness by pursuing it, we must be a happy people because millions in our nation and millions around the world are pursuing happiness in frantic fashion. And yet, quite often, we don't meet very many people who would seem to have found it. It's a fundamental quest of human beings to seek after some kind of happiness. Who, after all, would set out in life and say, I want to be miserable? 
I'm pursuing misery. I would like to be unhappy. I enjoy, some people act like they enjoy being unhappy, but I'm not sure that anybody really does. And yet for all the pursuing of happiness, as you well know, we Americans, as well as others in our world today, are people that know war and strife and terrorism and governmental inefficiency and hatreds and envies and disappointments and illness and personal tragedy and everything but happiness much of the time. Maybe we wonder if there ever is a class of people hidden somewhere who would say, I've found happiness. I know what it is, and I have it. Well, tonight we consider Psalm 1, the Bible's declaration, I would say, concerning the pursuit of happiness. I know the word happiness isn't in the psalm, but the word blessed is. And it's not a trite translation of blessed to translate it as something like supremely happy, supremely content, and well-situated and joyous in your place in life. Not the giddiness of a smile on your face or a laughter at a joke or, or the happiness of a party that passes away when everybody's done drinking and realizes how bad they feel. The kind of happiness that betokens deep contentment and lasting joy. When we explore Psalm 1, the interesting thing many don't know about it is in some old manuscripts of the Old Testament, it actually doesn't even have a number. It's regarded as a kind of preface to the whole book of Psalms because it introduces and more or less sets the theme of the book of Psalms, particularly in the way that it raises two starkly opposite alternative ways of life. The happiness and contentment and blessedness of the godly man or woman and the misery and the foolishness and the ultimate death, perishing of the ungodly, unrighteous person. Now those themes are carried throughout the Psalms and often in the book of Proverbs as well. As you know, Proverbs will say the wise man does this, but the fool does this. Well, this preface is David's way of designing and showing, I think, major themes that we'll see resurfacing many times in the Psalms. Human happiness defined by blessedness, we find here, is something of divine origin. It's a gift of God. And because it's not a human achievement, it is therefore the truest kind of happiness. If it comes from God, it's not our achievement, and it's not temporary. It has eternal qualities. There are two people portrayed in this psalm, as I've said, the blessed man and the ungodly man. And we could, if we would translate the word blessed, we could say, absolutely happy is the man who does this. When he was writing about Psalm 1, John Stott, the Bible commentator, said, I quote him, This introduction to the Psalter makes a clear-cut distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Stott said the whole Bible actually divides mankind into these two great categories and does not recognize any third category. In fact, he said the first word of the psalm, blessed, is the banner for the righteous man whose rejoicing is in the word of God, and the last word of the psalm is the banner for the fate of the other person, the word 
perish. So look at the beginning and the end. A blessed man and a man who will perish. God's Word tells us that real, deep, enduring happiness from God Himself is obtainable, but it is not to be found in all the pursuits and circumstances where so many people expect they will find it. I ask you tonight to think yourself whether you possess that rich, deep, contented, satisfied happiness in your God and Savior that only God bestows on those who are His believing possessions. First of all, tonight I want you to think how this psalm speaks about the universal quest for happiness. Just stepping aside for a moment, I would say this. I think that's an important preparatory comment, although the psalm itself doesn't say this. But if we went into Scripture in many other places, we would find that happiness isn't something that you obtain by going after it directly. If my wife says I'm going to the store to pick up a sirloin steak for our picnic, I know she's going with a real intent for that very specific object, and she's probably going to come home with that specific object. But if we go after happiness and say, today I'm going to do everything I can do to be happy, quite often that might be one of our more miserable days. Happiness is something that comes by us more indirectly as a byproduct of seeking other things, the Scripture shows us. You don't find it by saying, The Bible doesn't say, blessed is the man who seeks blessedness. But blessed is the man or woman who does this other thing. And so we remember that Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the other things will be added to you. And contentment and satisfaction and happiness were rightly listed, I think, among those other things. Now, David begins in verse 1 here by telling us where not to look for happiness. Happy is he who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or I prefer the translation of that word as other translations have it, ungodly, who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scorners or mockers. The Bible asks us to stop and realize there are some things we must not do if we would know the happy blessedness that God is going to bestow. We have to have a realistic estimation of the world and the people around us, the ungodly world, the anti-God world, and we have to know that this is a world that's going to pull us downward to its lowest level of morality and infect us with its cynicism, its satire, it's deception. We're not going to find this blessed happiness if we are totally oriented to the world's way of life as shaped by Hollywood producers, Madison Avenue, uh, sellers of products, the internet, the shopping mall, or any number of other opinion shapers of our world culture that are without God. The culture of humanity apart from God, the wicked culture, the ungodly culture, as this says here, simply is a whole different pattern. And it's not going to match up 
with the blessedness that God wants to have us enjoy. We need a new pattern of life that is not of this world at all. It should be a very simple truism, and yet we have to be reminded all the time, our young people have to be reminded in particular, that the character of people with whom they spend most of their time will shape them. And you have to look around and say, who am I spending my time with? Whose values am I imbibing? What literature or movies or entertainments are the people interested in that I'm spending time with? And are those things, things that are going to shape me and bring me into contact with the blessedness of God? The ungodly person or wicked person, as you prefer the translation, are those who mine only their own wisdom and they do not pay any attention to the way of the Lord or His Word. And so we're told here, too, not only the ungodly thinking person, but the person who actually is sinning, actively taking hold of harmful things and harmful practices. Pastor York listed quite a few of those as he read from 1 Corinthians 6 this morning. People who indulge in sexuality outside of marriage and in every kind of perverted form. People who simply drink alcohol to excess, and that's their, their great goal every weekend is to somehow blot out their troubles. People who abuse power and trample on others. People who are so consumed by seeking money that they'll engage in any scheme and cut any corner to put together a fortune. If those are the people you're spending time with, you're being shaped by them. Now, we don't suggest that you have to simply avoid all such people. You can't love the sinner in this world if you walk around with a sign saying, I never speak to sinners. Many of us were nurtured in early Christian lives in the fundamentalism of the mid-20th century, and I think as we look back, we know that there was not so much wisdom all the time in the fundamentalist withdrawal from the world. That was the biggest emphasis many times in many churches that did preach the gospel, that preached Christ. But alongside Christ, it seemed like the primary Christian behavior that you were being taught was what you do not do. They weren't terribly interested always in what you did do that was positive, but you better not be, and you fill in whatever it was, smoking, drinking, chasing wild women, playing cards, going to movies. Those were all on the list at my church anyway. I don't know about yours. Well, I think we need to be careful. I'm trying to take the temperature of evangelical Christianity at this time in the early 21st century, and I see how it's changed in 50 years. Those fundamental rules of negativism are mostly out today. People say, well, I'm not ruled by a lot of rules. I'm not a legalist. And goodness, I can have a beer if I want to. And and I hear all these things. And I hope we do have perhaps some more balance in Christian liberty today. But I'm a little afraid, a little afraid for some of our young adults who have grown up in an atmosphere of Christianity that has none of that avoidance mentality, and now today is saying, I can do anything. I can go anywhere. God wants me to go out and witness to these people. Well, be sure you're witnessing. Instead of having them suck the marrow out of your brain and change your values completely, 
It's a fine line sometimes to be active in the world and not become of the world. And it requires a lot of discernment. Another person that we're told to not associate with here in the end of verse 1 is the scorner. The seat of scorners. I think it's interesting that these people are depicted as seated. I picture the idea of a group of people who just kind of sit around all day and tell each other how superior they are to all those other people in the world. Why? Those stupid Christians. They think they're so much better than we are. Oh, the Bible. Who believes the Bible anymore? And satire is the great art form of these folks. They hold nothing sacred. They admire nothing. They can make anything into a joke. They're certainly not willing to die for very many things, and therefore I'm not sure what they're willing to live for. And they can always sneer with a hollow superiority towards people of faith, people of a real hope in God. Psalm 1-1 says, avoid people like this. Don't spend your major time. Certainly you're going to rub up against them. Certainly you're going to work beside them. They're going to be your next-door neighbor. They're going to be relatives. Of course, you don't divorce yourself utterly. But don't choose them as your intimate companions. They are going to bring you down to their level, and they are going to harm you by their pathetic thinking, their vain speech, and their undisciplined lives. So the first thing is negative in your quest for happiness. Sometimes in order to know what to do, you've got to know what not to do. But secondly, the psalm turns positive in in verse 2. Actually, this is a second sub-point under the quest for happiness. And here we see the positive thing, what the righteous believer does. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. Now, it's interesting. Of course, we're here as Christian people, the other side of the cross of Jesus. We don't see Jesus mentioned in this psalm, and of course, that couldn't be just from a time standpoint. And yet, we see a prelude, an entree to the gospel here in that it is the law of God, the Word of God, that is pointed to as the great preoccupation of the righteous man or woman who comes to know the gospel of God, the good news of God, the ways and thinking of God as they live in and absorb this source book of the revelation of who God is. Tasting Scripture, savoring the taste of it, rolling it about on their tongues, digesting it bite by bite, until it becomes for them a delightful meal that they would anticipate eating. Now, I don't say that Scripture becomes that way for every person at the very first thing in their Christian life. I think there's a sense in which Scripture is an acquired taste. Oh, there is the sense in which the minute we're born again, we see God's Word differently. He lifts the shades of our unbelieving eyes, and we see things, and they're new to us. But I think really loving Scripture to the point where you begin to desire it and want to be in it and studying it is something that comes more gradually. I remember when I was about 13 or 14, for some reason, I thought that becoming an adult meant you drank coffee. My parents drank coffee, and they would allow me to sample coffee when I was 12 or 13, so I thought, well, this is a big step towards being an adult. 
Well, guess what? I hated coffee. I hated it. And I, I had to doctor it up, put so much milk in it, so much sugar in it, that it wasn't very much coffee anymore. But gradually, I grew to like it. It became an acquired taste, and I backed off. The, my wife doesn't allow any sugar in it now, and uh, very little milk now, and I can even drink it black and enjoy it. But coffee was an acquired taste. And to, until I came to relish it, it was a period of time. And I know some of you, I, I, I actually know a person who's in this room who would say, no, thank you, I won't have coffee, I'm a Christian. But I won't, I won't point to that person, I won't bring any embarrassment on his head, won't even look at him. But Scripture is a taste that we acquire that becomes sweet and nutritious to us. Something we, we long to partake of it until we can read the 119th Psalm and all the wonderful praises it has for the Word of God. Like, how sweet are your words to me, O Lord. Sweet to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. That's what the righteous person seeks out. Not the companions who have nothing to offer. The Word of God that has to offer the knowledge of the God whom it reveals. Tonight at the end of the service, we're going to sing John Newton's hymn that has in it the line, Behold or see the stream of living water springing from eternal love. Well supplies your sons and daughters and all fear of want removes. Who can faint while such a river ever flows our thirst to assuage? That's Scripture that John Newton was talking about. The river that God's people drink from and desire and find it, that it gives them life and it changes them. Psalm 1 is just opening the door here in an initial way to say, when you know the Word of God, you know not just a book that you read, but a book that reads you. A transformational book that works in a powerful way in your life, teaching and literally changing you, making a crucial difference between hopeless human futility and a rising delightful tide of joy in the knowledge of God. All right, secondly, I want to move on to this great comparison that comes in verses 3 and 4. The unbelieving person, the wicked one, sinner, mocker, whatever he's going to be called, is compared to something in nature, and the believer is compared to something in nature. And the comparisons are to a tree and a handful of chaff. Now, I see how the text is written, but I'm going to reverse the order, if I may. Just give me that privilege to speak about verse 4, the negative side first. The spiritual chaff that the wind blows away. This is the unbeliever. You know, most secular people out there in the world are quite sure that there's no major difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. They don't believe in the new birth. They don't think that's something that really changes anybody. They say, well, yes, these Christians, they value their church. They go to their church. Their life centers on that, and my life centers on other things. I'm on my boat out in the Chesapeake Bay or, or whatever while they're in church, but we're the same. We're just people. But God's Word says, no, that's wrong. You don't understand. There's a fundamental difference between the righteous man and woman and the unbeliever. 
And it's not just the difference. Notice here, it's not a comparison between two kinds of trees. Maybe the comparison would have been given and said, the righteous man is like a great oak tree, and the unbeliever is like a little willow sapling that just bends over and has no strength. No, that's not what it says. It's not a comparison between two trees. It's a comparison between a green, living, strong, vital tree and some dry chaff. I contemplated a visual exhibition tonight. I didn't know where I could get some chaff that I could just blow out of my hand, but I don't have any. But if you've ever just crumbled a stalk of wheat in your hand and and had the the heavy grain separate from the, the light outer casing, you know what chaff is. When they when they flailed grain in Israel, they usually chose the threshing floor to be on a hilly place that was windy for a very good reason. They used their wooden flails and struck the grain, which caused the, the chaff and the wheat to separate, and the wheat, which was heavier, would fall to the, the hard-packed threshing floor, and the wind would simply pick up the chaff and blow it away. It was worthless. Now, that's what this word is saying. The unbeliever is not any kind of a tree. He's the worthless, dry byproduct of something living that no longer is alive or in any way valuable. He's a dead discard, a useless husk of something that once was alive, but the good part has been separated out. The secular man of this world is different from the man in whom God lives by faith in his word with all the difference between life and no life. Now just imagine, it's not quite sweet corn season around here. The corn that I see is less than a foot tall, but you know how fast it grows, and we're going to have sweet corn on all the stands around here in a matter of weeks, and we're all going to go buy it because we love it. Now just suppose you're invited to your friend's house, and they say, I've got some fresh corn, Amish corn. It's right off the farm. It'll be great for our dinner. And you went to to dinner, and your host was, was out on the deck preparing by cleaning up the corn and stripping it off. And they pulled off the husks, the green husks, and dropped them in a bag and got the corn and dropped that in another bag. And then they took the bag of corn and threw it out. And said, well, I've got a new recipe. Tonight we're going to have boiled husks. You'd say, I think I'm going somewhere else. I don't think any boiled husk would taste that great with butter and salt on it that I can imagine. Not like sweet corn. God's evaluation of a human life lived without him, ignorant of him, ignorant of his word, is that this person is chaff. Let the wind breathe on it and it's gone. It's nothing. And the one thing that person needs to do in this world is cry out to God and and admit his condition and say, I am nothing. My whole life feels like rubbish. God, I take ownership of this. Recreate me, O God. Make me new by your saving power. And he will, of course. But unrelated to God and unbowed before God, the unbeliever is trash. But thirdly, what is the believer, the dominant image that's here in verse 3 now, backing up again? The believing man or woman is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. God's human trees are all 
evergreen trees. They are all evergreens. They're always green. They're always living. Notice the the text says that the tree is planted. Something plants every tree, whether a human being or maybe the wind blowing a seed somewhere, but trees don't plant themselves. Either some force of nature, maybe an animal carrying a seed and dropping it into a crevice in the ground, or a man coming and digging a deliberate hole, plants the tree. Well, God plants the tree of the Christian life. The Scripture teaches us that it's His initiative, and by the new birth in Christ, His life germinates in us and comes alive. But not only does He plant us, He plants us in the right place, a prosperous place, by flowing streams where our growth will have the very best of all prospects. Paul says we are planted in Christ And Christ in us, that great mystery of being in Christ that Paul talked about is like saying we are seeds planted by God in the moist and nutritious soil of His transaction at the cross and resurrection so that in Jesus Christ and what He accomplished, we are able to grow. So that a passage like Galatians 2.20 would say that while we live, it's not really ourselves living, but Christ living in us making us fruitful, making us grow, making us wiser, bringing the fruit of deeds of righteousness and compassion and service to other people as the evidences that Christ is in us and our roots have gone down into that good soil. And, of course, we could go down the whole path of judging the tree by its fruit, but that's all implicit here. The question is, have you got this life of Christ in you? It's the one great issue in your life that matters the most. Are you planted in Christ so that the very life of God stirs in you? Charles Wesley, in one of his hymns, saw Christ as the very center of all Christian joy when he said, O Christ, thou art all I want. More than all in thee I find. Christ in me, the center of divine joy. Well, then this psalm closes out in the fifth and sixth verses, telling us now it, it, it keeps switching a little bit. Now it's switched from the chaff and the tree to tell us of the pathway of different lives, two divergent life paths or ways. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. A person's way is their chosen life, which, if left unchanged, determines their eternal goal, destination. I think you know from things I've said in the past that I greatly esteem Robert Frost as a great American poet. I don't think anyone who knows even a little bit of poetry doesn't know Frost, probably one of his most famous poems, the one that he spoke of, Two Roads diverged in a yellow wood. I took the one less traveled by, he said, and that has made all the difference. Now, Robert Frost wasn't promoting Christianity, but he was talking about taking the unpopular path and how different an outcome it had in his life. 
How often today do we hear the absolutely silly assumption being spoken or promoted or at least assumed by someone that, oh, well, I can travel my own path and do my own thing, and I'll end up at as good a destination as those other folks? Well, no, the Bible says no. What folly? You just don't take all paths to the same destination. I come back again and again to Proverbs fourteen twelve, summarizing that there is a way that seems right. Everything about it looks good. It seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. It looks great at the beginning, but those who go down it perish. The ungodly, scornful person thinks he's in the same situation as any Christian. But he's very far down his path, if not too far, before he understands that the end means perishing. Here in verse 5, it talks about judgment that's coming at the end of our earthly life. What is going to happen to this chaff person in the judgment? Well, they're going to meet Christ. Because later in the Scripture, we learn that God has appointed His Son to be the judge of all things, and we all will face Him. We will face Him who already know Him. We will face Him who already have had a transaction done on our behalf in Him by which His righteousness is transferred into our account, and we will face Him stunned with the splendor of who He is, and yet unafraid, unafraid as we rejoice in His presence. But think of the chaff person who all his life scorned Jesus Christ, for whom the name of Jesus was a curse word, who knew him from Sunday school, but not at all, really. And he faces him in the holy awesomeness of Christ, the eternal Son on the throne of heaven. And he faces him in terror and dread, and the least breath from the mouth of Christ blows that person away to an eternity from which there's no recovery. Friends, I trust you're a person tonight that knows that loving the Word of God is the first step in the right direction. It's the first step that leads you to the gospel eventually in the New Testament, of course. The Scriptures open up the path of true delight and happiness the best that any person can know, and it doesn't turn us into you know, people like the yellow smiley face who have to walk around all the time with this great big grin on our face to prove that we're really Christians. I'm actually a little suspicious of smiley face Christians. There can be an artificiality about that. But it doesn't really matter what your face absolutely registers. It matters what your heart and your mind registers. Are you satisfied in Christ? Are you content in the work that he's done for you? Are you secure and at peace with your eternal state? Do you have that, what Peter called in his first epistle, joy unspeakable and full of glory? Joy that feeds on a refreshing stream from the Word of God and the Spirit of God, giving you peace even in the midst of chaotic or threatening or tragic or difficult circumstances. Preserving you, keeping you fresh and growing to the end of your life, and then still yearning beyond this life for the greatest pleasures that eternity promises. 
I pray that you know that. And I pray that this book of the revelation of God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is like that river flowing through your life, feeding you, nourishing the roots of your joy, your blessedness in this great God. A hymn of John Newton speaks about this true happiness and blessedness. Savior, if of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. Let those people in their seat of mockers mock me all day long. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show for solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. Praise God. Thank him for the truest, truest joy and happiness that we can know in our God and Savior. Father, establish us in this. There's surely someone here tonight facing a hard time in the midst of suffering. We need this joy. We need that peace like a river that transcends the particular situations that we're in. We need that comfort from you. You know our way, this psalm says. You guard over us. You preserve us. Minister your satisfying joy and blessedness to the one that is most at need of it tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.